Good morning, sir. Great pleasure and delight to uh, be with you to bring you God's word uh, this day. Let's uh, commit this time to the Lord. Gracious God, even as we come into your presence, Father, Lord, that you fill us with your spirit and that whatever is shared and, Lord, whatever transpired, Lord, we pray that you will use it for your glory, that you speak into our hearts and into our lives, even as we look at your word. We give you thanks and praise, all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, uh, Prof. Uh, Graham Ellison is a uh, Harvard professor of um, government. He's an expert in uh, international relations. And recently, a number of years ago, he wrote a book about the uh, potential conflict between U.S. and China. And uh, through his book and some of the discussions uh, or talks that he gave based on his writings, uh, he came across this very interesting fact. Uh, about the growth of China, and he, he writes based on his research, between 2010 to 2013, China produced and used more cement, more concrete, than the, the, the United States in the whole, the entire 20th century. Uh, that's an incredible statistic, uh, showing you just a glimpse of how aggressively uh, a nation like China has uh, grown uh, through the years. Um, you may not see it that clearly, I don't think the picture appears uh, that clearly, but um, it, over on the left, uh, it shows you the forecasted growth, a study made by McKinsey, potential growth of the um, middle class, uh, you know, middle to upper middle class of China, the lighter blue uh, segment um, from two, tw uh, 2012 to 2022, 20, uh, and it's an incredible growth in terms of the... Uh, wealthy middle class, 14% uh, to 54%. So uh, key takeaway is that jump in the uh, well-to-do middle class is huge uh, for China. There is a lot of new wealth uh, being created uh, for China, nation of China. Uh, Asian Corinth was something like this. We are Coming to the end of our scheduled readings for Corinthians, we did 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Pastor and Giam Liang brought us uh, uh, sermons based on this book. And uh, I thought it would be a nice roundup as soon as we come to our end of our readings in the two letters of Corinthians that we have in the scripture uh, about Asian Corinth. And I hope uh, that our passage, some of the passages that we'll um, be looking today will be a good roundup of our discussions thus far. Asian Corinth was a bustling uh, city of new wealth. Uh, Gordon Fee, the famous uh, Bible scholar, famously said that Corinth was like you know, New York, Los Angeles, Las Vegas put together. That was the bustling uh, uh, kind of situation that the city was in. And as we can see, it's not just New York and Los Angeles anymore. It's more like Mumbai, the Shanghai's of, of the mega cities of today. And uh, there is a little bit of a simplification, but you can get a sense of this city uh, that um, Paul was uh, ministering to. It was uh, a city of new wealth because in 146 BC, the Roman army actually destroyed the cities. Corinth from ancient Greece was obviously a major uh, city, but they were destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. And uh, so when around the time when Paul ministered in this city, it was around about 50 AD or 51 AD, so to speak, um, it was a city that 
was very vibrant and full of new wealth. They didn't have like other uh, perhaps ancient uh, cities in the Mediterranean. They didn't have a, a aristocracy, right? They didn't have the rich old family, old money. Because of the relative youth of that city at the time of Paul, there was a lot of new money. There was a lot of uh, new wealth being created. Even uh, former slaves who got their freedom actually made it good. They, they you know, went into business. Uh, you know, ancient Corinth was a very strategic location in terms of their port facilities. Uh, basically, it allowed ships to cut through the small isthmus rather than sail through the, uh, the, the, the southern part of Greece. So very strategic trading merchants. And so you could imagine um, some of the uh, characteristics of their worldview was ambition, drive, entrepreneurship, uh, you know, very shrewd dis uh, deal-making, business sense. And also because they didn't have the old families, they didn't have the old money, the, the traditional of, of generations after generations of wealth, the newly rich, right, the, what did the French call it, the nouveau riche, the newly rich had to prove themselves. They didn't have a, 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 a long family history, so how do they prove themselves and, and say that, you know, we have arrived? It was this aggressive projection of wealth, of status. And uh, in fact, those who have done archaeological research uh, based on the ancient ruins, they found that, in fact, some of the former slaves who made it big uh, had monuments built to say, you know, so-and-so uh, built this or, you know, donated this for the civic good and so on and so forth. So there was a very aggressive sense of projecting um, status, wealth to announce uh, that you have arrived. So there was some of their worldviews. And uh, some of them obviously imported some of these values to the uh, church, the church in Corinth that we've seen from 1 Corinthians and uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, some of their characteristics that they brought was a strong desire for a manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. This is good, of, obviously. They had drive. They wanted to be innovative. Um, they were up for new things and to uh, try new things. And this was one of the things that, uh, you know, they were good in um, you know, pursuing the gifts of the Spirit. That's good, but Unfortunately, because of the other aspects of their cultural worldviews, they caused a lot of problems within the church, a lot of disunity, a lot of factions, uh, and a lot of disorder. Also, because of, uh, I think Pastor preached on this before, because of the way religious and business and civic life was so tightly integrated in a city, in an ancient uh, Mediterranean city like uh, Corinth, that to be part of civic life, to, you know, be acceptable in your social standing, uh, for your commercial business, a lot of deal-making was happening around festivals or events around the temple, and so they had a very tightly integrated uh, social and religious life. And the, uh, you know, apparently some of the church members themselves participated in this you know, religious temple life, and obviously that led to idolatry. So a lot of problems. And so First Corinthians kind of tried to address this problem, but their worldviews also caused some problems with their relationship with the Apostle Paul. What did some of them actually think of the Apostle Paul? 
for some in the church, Paul is a weak leader. Paul is a person who, you know, if you, if, if, if you uh, think of a successful religious leader, obviously the message will be well received, you'll be celebrated, you know, you have letters of recommendation, you have a long list of referrals and such. For Paul, his message was rejected by his own people. Uh, he's often persecuted and condemned by his own people. He's constantly weighed down with concern over his churches, with depression maybe. Or he's getting himself in trouble, jail, beaten up. Uh, he submitted to the uh, punishment of, of the synagogues, which is to receive uh, lashes uh, because of perceived uh, betrayal of their culture and religion. Uh, some in the Corinthian church uh, didn't think that he was a very impressive speaker, uh, you know, in person. He, uh, he writes a good deal, but in person, not very impressive. Not impressive. Uh, here's another thing. He actually worked for a living. In the ancient culture of places like Corinth, there's this concept of patronship. So those newly rich or those who are wealthy uh, became sponsors or patrons of the arts of religious leaders like Paul. And so if you were a, you know, accepted, successful, a dynamic leader, there would be patrons who would want to sponsor you, who would look after you. Um, and Paul specifically avoids that for uh, Corinth. Obviously, he receives support from the churches in general, for, but for Corinth, he's very careful not to do that. He actually worked with his hands in tent making uh, to avoid complications between, you know, having a patron and being obligated to say nice things about your patron. He, he wants to avoid that for a place like Corinth. And so, you know, his opponents kind of made uh, an issue with that and say, yeah, maybe he's not so you know, uh, celebrated, he's not so prominent uh, that he didn't deserve any kind of patronship and he's, you know, doing a lot of labor with his hands. Not, not the kind of leader that we think should be respected. And so, uh, compared with other highly esteemed apostles, uh, we don't know who, but generally uh, very well-respected apostles, compared to other celebrity preachers, so to speak, uh, around the church circles at that time, uh, some, at least in the Corinthian church, didn't think uh, Paul was much of a leader. In a shame and honor culture, that's the ancient culture, a little bit similar to um, our Asian culture, a lot of face, a lot of uh, honor involved. In that kind of uh, culture, it, it was, you know, you're not proud to be associated with a leader like Paul. It's somewhat shameful because, you know, if you are a follower of Paul or, you know, he's your teacher and he's, he's getting rejected, right? He's getting very bad reviews for his preaching. Uh, he's always in jail. He's, you know, beaten up and condemned. You know, it's shameful. It reflects on you as well as a follower. It's shameful on you as well. So how did Paul address that? Uh, very quickly, in his first letter, he kind of addressed the cultural worldview of the, uh, you know, of the people. Very briefly, he he kind of told the people that their cultural values, the, the values that they thought were strong, the, the, the kind of knowledge that they thought were wise, actually, these are all part of an age that is already passing away. 
And so their participation and their boasting, this is a point that we'll come back to later, but their participation and boasting in worthy values, in, in, in um, boasting about riches, about status, about honor, about whatever, you're participating in things that are under God's judgment and wrath. And so he addresses that and he says, you know, look at my life and uh, imitate me. Now, we know that something happened between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians from Paul's own writing in the second letter, or in the second letter we have in the scripture. There was a breach, in fact. So first, after 1 Corinthians, he visited them. There was a, uh, clearly a huge wrangle and breach. And so now, more factions with the perhaps encouragement of other teachers and celebrity preachers and teachers um, cause a breach in the relationship. Uh, and Paul had to write a very stern letter to them. And so the situation may be corrected a little bit, but in 2 Corinthians, he's trying to address questions or challenges to his apostleship, to his ministry, whether Paul himself is actually fit to be an apostle of Christ. And he very clear, clearly uh, you know, lays out uh, a defense of his ministry and turns the table around to show that the very perceived weakness that they see in him are actually marks of a true apostle and servant of the crucified Messiah. There are two key things that we just want to focus on in our time together, and that is to say, which is addressed in the second letter that we have, is that how can surpassing glory and power be contained in the frailty in the body, in the weakness that Paul has and other uh, faithful disciples of Christ? How can such glory be contained in such weak vessels? How can weakness be an instrument for God's strength and power? And that is the, the kind of climax, if you will, the crescendo of what Paul is working on through his second letter the, uh, that we have, Second Corinthians. And so the central question that we might want to look together is how do we actually experience the Lord's power? This is what the scripture that was read says, and just to reiterate again, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, because if you read the earlier part of that chapter, Paul had been you know, given such great revelations uh, that the Spirit brought him up to heaven and he's seen uh, things that you know, scarcely can be described and so, he says now here, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was, given, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, of course, scholars and commentators have a, a good time arguing and debating what this uh, thorn in the flesh is, but most commentators agree that it's most likely a physical ailment. We, we know from uh, the letter to the Galatians that Paul said, I was so sick that time, right? And, but that God used that as an opportunity to minister to you. But, so we know that he is not in perfect health. Uh, this is contrary to the health and wealth gospel, right, that you, you, you hear nowadays. God, uh, Paul was not in perfect health. He had to struggle with health. He was a great healer. God did miraculous healing through him, but he himself was not in perfect health. And most commentators uh, believe that this thorn in the flesh is not just a physical ailment, but it, it caused him some social embarrassment. 
because of some statements that some in Corinth made of him. You know, his appearance, you know, this not, 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 not impressive. The speech is weak. You know, physical appearance, something is not quite right. So it is something that likely caused Paul not only physical suffering, but some form of social embarrassment that he felt that actually hindered his work. He felt that this hindered the work of the gospel. He pleaded with the Lord three times. I pleaded not just three times, but blankly as a phrase to say, you know, he was praying uh, constantly about this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from him. This is not something that he enjoyed, obviously. But he said to me, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So, the, the, the weakness that his opponents have thrown upon him to degrade him, to insult him, he says, I will actually boast about those weaknesses because I now know that this is the way that God will allow his power to work in my life and through my life. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's make this move uh, to follow uh, Paul's maybe reflection and thought in terms of how do we experience the Lord's power. And the first aspect of that we want to look at is abandoning the worldly values, the value system, the power structures of this world. And Paul, in his first letter, uh, said this, for, in, for this world, in its present form, is passing away. In fact, if you read this, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the key point that he's taking is that all of human experience, including married life, including the times where we mourn, including material wealth and the use of possessions, and material wealth, he says, don't be engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. The whole um, gist of the first letter of Corinthians is that this world, the power structures, the things that we like to boast in, there are two things to remember. They are passing away, number one. Number two, they are coming under God's judgment and wrath. So, he is challenging the Corinthian church members, you are saved, but why are you participating in things that are coming under God's judgment and wrath? In the second letter of Corinthians, he says, for now we regard no one from a worldly point of view Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He's trying to say this. To the Greeks and to the Jews, the message of Christ crucified is something, about a, something a little bit of a nonsense, if you think it from a worthy point of view. For the Jews, the Messiah is the conquering king. To preach that the Messiah is crucified as a shameful criminal is something along the lines of blasphemy. 
that's scandalous. The Messiah is not just some hero who died in the war. Everybody understand that, yeah? He sacrificed his life, you know, for the country. That's fine. But the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, who will conquer all enemies and place them under their feet, for that figure to be crucified is scandalous. For the Greeks, it's foolish. It really makes no sense. It really makes no sense. Uh, what's more, this Messiah figure is from an insignificant tribe in somewhere in the Middle East or Palestine. To say that this crucified cruci uh, criminal is now the true Lord of the world, again, doesn't make sense from a worthy point of view. And that is what Paul says, from a worthy point of view, we regarded Christ and he was a persecutor of the, the early church because of his zeal for the law and he was looking at Christ from a worthy point of view. But he says, we no longer do that. If you keep on to a, the, the worthy point of view, obviously you will reject what Christ has to say. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, or new creation has come, is no longer part of the old creation. The old has gone, the new is here. Therefore, what Paul is saying is that, again, boasting or participating in the value systems of this world, think about what makes us strong. Think about what makes us successful. What makes us outperform others in the terms of our skills? And not that it's wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that we're doing anything immoral. But what areas, gifting, talents that make us successful and outperform the rest that might lead us to boast in these things or to find our identity and security in them? What are these things? And if they are all part of the old world order, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, it's passing away, it's coming under God's judgment and wrath. So we have to choose for ourselves the old dying age of being engrossed in worthy affairs or the new creation being remade in the image of Christ. Of course, on paper, it looks straightforward, right? I mean... Who wants to be part of the old dying age? Obviously, we'll say, no, I'm not after, I'm not, I'm not going to go for that. Uh, on paper, it's so easy, right? Who, who doesn't want to be part of the new age, remade in the image of Christ? It's, it's obvious, but I think you and I know reality is much more challenging, right? Uh, the old age might be dying or coming under God's judgment, but it feels so good because it gives us so much strength and comfort. It is, if you are good in what you do, it is instant gratification because you will get a lot of affirmation, a lot of applause. It is your track record. It is your prestige. It is your standing. And though on paper we will say, yeah, I mean, that's the old dying age. The challenge for our faith is that in reality, in the practical everyday realities, this is what gives us comfort 
gives us security, gives us identity. This is what sometimes leads us to boasting. On the other hand, the new creation sounds good on paper, in reality, very difficult, right? Because a lot of the work that God does in our lives is unseen. It's not instant gratification. God works in us for eternity. So, obviously, God takes the long view. We don't have instant gratification. Most of the time, we are asked to sacrifice more than we think we should. Most of the time, we are asked to give up entitlements that we think we are entitled to. And so, we can say that we want to be part of the new age or new creation, but in, uh, our faith is challenged every day to choose between the old dying age or new creation. The old dying age will give us a lot of sense of security and achievement. But the end result is part of a dying world, a dying age. There was this uh, um, French celebrity chef, Bernard Vazo. Uh, he's a Michelin three stars. Those of you who know what a Michelin star is, for in terms of restaurants, that's the, the mark of excellence and achievements. To get a one star is difficult enough. To get three stars is nigh impossible. But this guy, uh, Bernard, let's call him, uh, you know, spent so many years. He, he always said that his life ambition is to get a Michelin star. And he worked almost 20 years, 17 years, working hard, making a name for himself, getting the applause and the, the credit for his uh, great work. And he did get three stars, actually. But towards the uh, late 1990s, there was a new wave of innovation in terms of this fusion Couch, uh, fusion cuisine where they mix in Asian uh, cultures or cuisine into you know, European cooking or French. And uh, Bernard is someone who did not buy into that, so he did not innovate along those lines. And over the years, it became increasingly clear that other chefs were overtaking him. He, he's left behind by the growing trends and the taste of the people. And so, um, oh, you know, he became uh, quite pressurized and depressed. And he, he, did, he, he reported to have said that, you know, if he lost a Michelin star, he would commit suicide. Uh, but in, in 2003, another guy, not Michelin, another guy actually downgraded his uh, restaurant. And there was reports, speculation in the papers that Michelin would also possibly down, downgrade his, um, his Michelin stars. And he actually took, him, he took his own life. Uh, he used a shotgun on himself. Of course, it is an extreme case. But if your mark of boasting and success, your credibility and identity is part of this world, aren't we harming ourselves in the long term if we continue to draw from this world? So, do our talents, our strengths, our achievements, do they help or do they hinder us from truly encountering Christ? We will circle back to this uh, a bit later. Secondly, abandoning worthy values, looking to Jesus, looking to Christ. 
This is what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil, is, the passage is talking about comparing the old covenant and the new covenant, the veil of unbelief uh, is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul is talking in this context about how Moses previously encountered the glory of the Lord's presence, so much so that he had to veil his face when he met with the people. The people, because of their sinfulness, they dare not uh, meet or, or get a glimpse of God's glory. They know that that's going to cause them trouble. So, you know, they, they couldn't look at the glory of the Lord. Moses had to veil himself. But now, in Christ, because of the outpouring of the Spirit, Paul is saying that those who look to Christ actually dwell in the midst of that glory. The glory that filled the old covenant is passing away. The glory of the new covenant is growing from strength to strength, the surpassing glory that Paul encounters in Christ. And he says this, now where the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He's not here talking about freedom from moral constraints. Remember, the whole context of this is that he is defending his ministry. And so Paul is saying, his opponents is saying to him that, you know, he's, he, he doesn't have the credentials to be a true apostle because of weaknesses, frailty, failures, whatever. Paul is saying his encounter with the Spirit of Christ gives him freedom to serve the Lord, to preach the gospel without need to resort to the worldly power systems and values of boasting, status, commendation, recommendation letters, whatever. His opponents were going around with saying, you know, I've got a commendation letter from so-and-so, uh, uh, you know, a senior leader of the church. You know, I've credibility to teach, you know, I'm very popular, whatever it is. Paul is saying he doesn't need that. He has encountered the glory of God. He has received the spirit of the living God. And this gives him the freedom to serve God, to preach the gospel, without need to go back to the old values of the dying world to say, this is my boasting, this is my success, this is my track record. So Paul, in other words, is freed from the need of approval, from affirmation, from acceptance, from a worthy point of view. He continues to say, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we look to the Lord, there is immense power and glory that transform us into the image of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the key challenge of our faith is that a lot of this transformation is unseen. It's not instant gratification, neither is it instant perfection. It is faith by faith each day, even as we persevere in the faith, encountering weakness, failures, opposition, etc. And so in the midst of these failures, the weakness of life, our frailty, Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning our frail and weak life, subject to destruction, disease, setbacks, 
beatings, persecutions. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so, back to the question, can the frailty and weakness of a surrendered life, like Paul, actually contain the all-surpassing glory and power of the Lord? That life subject to rejection, insults, persecution, beatings, jail time, rejection. Can that frailty and weakness of a failed life, of a surrendered life to the Lord, actually contain the all-surpassing glory and power of the Lord? And uh, Paul's answer to this, I think, is not only yes is possible, but yes is necessary. And that's a key, there's a huge gulf of difference, right? It is not just possible, it is necessary. This frailty, this weakness is necessary to be filled with the all-surpassing glory and, and power of the living God. He says this in the first letter. Let me just go back quickly to the first letter that he uh, wrote. For Christ did not uh, send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence from a worthy point of view, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We cannot mix God's grace and power with the value system of this world. Our preaching, our ministry, our service will be devoid of the power of God. Not to say that the power of God can be destroyed. The power of God is sovereign and almighty every time, everywhere, but when we use worthy values, we, we prevent people from experiencing the true power of God. And he continues in that first letter, the first chapter of the first letter, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not they're of no value, they're, you, you don't even, it's not even worth to be mentioned, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So God has made a choice. It is possible that, of course, God could use the status, achievements, the boasting of the world to accomplish his purposes, but in the context of the gospel, God will not choose. God will not choose the strong and the wise ways of this world to accomplish his work. Our lack is not that we don't have enough money, that we don't have enough resources, that we don't have enough power. Our current lack individually, individually and as a church is an insufficient sense of the presence of God's glory. We are not doing God's favor, any favors to come to say, no, we have all this list of achievements, we have this money we can give to the church. God says the silver is mine, the gold is mine, the silver is mine. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. There is nothing we can give God that he doesn't already have. So, 
to answer the previous question, whether our strength, our achievements help or hinder, for Paul, there is no compromise. We might be led to think that, yeah, some of my gifts and talents you know, might be used for God's kingdom. I can hold on to them. Some maybe not, not, not relevant or, yeah, maybe I have a bad habit here. It's okay. But yeah, but this, this, is the, this is my gifts and my talents, right? This is my track record. This is my status. I can actually help God. For Paul, there's no compromise. There is no mixing of the old world and the new age or the new creation. Paul had much to boast on. You see his autobiographical statements in uh, Philippians chapter 3. He is a person of substance and status in his old life. Circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as regards to the law, a Pharisee. He is somebody of status and significance in his old life. But he says, for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing glory of knowing Christ, I count all of this loss. It cannot be brought to the new creation. Paul is crucified with Christ and all that has gone in the past is part of the old world that has died. But did God use his talents, his experience, his knowledge? Yes, of course, God did. But only after Paul had went through being crucified with Christ. So that all that Paul now has, his, his uh, uh, talents, his skills, his experience, is fully for the work of the kingdom. Not for boasting, for the work of the kingdom. And so looking to Christ is to abandon the power structures that give us reason to boast. I think that, I don't think I'm wrong to say but I think that a lot of times, sometimes, God allows our plans to fail. Not because we are weak or we lack skills or we're not impressive enough. I think God sometimes allows us to fail precisely because we are too good for our own good. We are too good for our own Because if God were to allow that, we will achieve, obviously, success but it will lead to boasting. God spares us the judgment down the road by allowing us to fail when we bring all this boasting and status and riches to think that we can do God any favours in serving His kingdom. God allows us to fail to spare us from the judgment because it will lead to boasting. It will lead to kind of the kind of problems that we see from the letters in the Corinthian church. Finally, living with weakness. I want to go, uh, you know, this is quite a difficult thing. A thorn in the flesh. We are encountering weakness. Um, sometimes it's hard to describe in words. But God promised to us is this. He will not let us be tempted or tested beyond what we can bear. The Greek word for that, perazo, can mean tempted or temptations or being tested, being tested or refined. And in that midst of that thorn in the flesh or that weakness or that trouble, God answers us either through deliverance or empowerment. Deliverance 
when we could no longer bear it, empowerment, when by the sovereign choice of God, he gives us more grace and power to go through it. Deliverance. Paul's uh, testimony himself said he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So there is nothing to be gained from seeking pain or suffering as a spiritual value. That, there is nothing to it. No, you don't whip yourself, whatever. No, there's no value in that. So when we encounter trouble, pain and suffering, we do ask and petition the Lord for deliverance. And Paul says, you know, my deliverance will cause thanksgiving because a lot of churches and people are praying for me. So we should do the same. There's, no, there's nothing to say that you just swallow suffering and take it as uh, whatever. When we encounter suffering and trouble, it is to pray for deliverance. And Paul's testimony is yes, God delivered him. However, there are times when the answer is not no, huh? don't, don't you know, come to the understanding that God said no, sorry, you know, no. There will be times when the answer is my grace will be sufficient for you. That you will experience the perfection of God's power in the time of your weakness. God's power is the same everywhere, every situation. But in times of weakness is when you will experience a greater revelation or manifestation of God's surpassing power. What is this power for? Transformation from the old to the new. It's a lifelong process. It's not instant. We see Paul having the power of God even in his frailty and weakness to take authority over anything that distorts the gospel or sets up itself against God's purposes. He takes authority and says, you know, we are not, you know, working with worthy weapons, but power that can take down strongholds. We take authority over every argument that sets itself up against God and bring it under the Lord Jesus Christ. That power gives you the authority to confront the things that disrupt God's purposes in your life and the life of the church. Paul says, you know, Christ was crucified in, in weakness, but he lives with God's power and obviously the same with us who are in Christ. We have been crucified as far as the world is concerned for worthy values and strength and riches or whatever, but remember this, we are raised with the power of God to be transformed and to live for Him and to take authority against all that sets up itself against God's purposes and the gospel of Christ. The power of being weak and in, in, unimpressive in the eyes of the world, but continually being made strong in the eyes of God. And so my prayer for us is that you be refreshed and comforted in the riches of the grace that he has given you in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be strong in the strength of the Lord, to be mindful each day of the power, the immense power, the provision and the presence of God.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.